Hey everybody, thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Alright, so my guest this week is Todd Adelot, who is an ultra runner and race director living in New York City. And unlike a lot of folks we have on the show who might approach running from a more competitive side, be it in the form of races or fastest known times, Todd uses running to fuel his interest in history. He's completed numerous ultra-length runs that visit important locations in the lives of unique historical figures, like Edgar Allan Poe, Teddy Roosevelt, Walt Whitman, and many others. And as you'll learn from this interview, Todd is also quite the film buff. And in 2019, he staged an underground group run inspired by the cult classic film The Warriors, which is really unlike any race I've ever heard of. We talk a lot about that event's unique format, how Todd got into historical ultra running in the first place, why he thinks running is one of the best ways to learn about the world, and a whole lot more. And I also just want to say that if you're enjoying listening to the conversations I've been having on this show and find yourself wanting to get more into trail running, I'd encourage you to sign up for a Blister membership so you can send us an email and get my personal recommendations to help you find the right pair of running shoes. Check out the link in the show notes for more info on that, as well as all the other benefits becoming a Blister member gets you. So with that, let's get right into my conversation with Todd. All right, Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Yeah, uh, I wanted to have you on because I read the uh, New York Times profile of you and the type of uh, events you've put on for the past few years, and I, I felt like there was more there. You have a really, really interesting relationship to running. You kind of use running as a way to explore um, history, really. Um, and I think, you know, our we consider running like a sport in a sense, but I think it's a lot more than that to a lot, a lot of people. Um, so I'm interested to hear uh, how you got into running and how you kind of combine it with history. Sure. Yeah. Happy to, uh, and really appreciate the interest, uh, Matt. Yeah. I've, um, you know, throughout my life, I've had a, a really close relationship with running. Uh, it's certainly way closer now than when I was a younger man. But uh, for one year in high school, I ran track and then um, really fell away uh, from running for some time until right after graduate school. And uh, after graduate school, I was um, uh, really at that time, I was uh, recovering from alcoholism and uh, was running relentlessly for a couple years uh, to really deal with that. Every time I had any kind of craving or anything, I just went running. And I ended up um, having two really severe uh, knee injuries. My kneecaps rolled off my knees, uh, an injury called condomalacia patella. And oddly, it happened simultaneously to both knees. So both knees like exploded uh, from, from overtraining. And that was a really significant injury. And uh, to be honest, I, I didn't really come back to running uh, until my late 40s. It was such a sign. I'd moved over to a different sport. I was surfing for, for many years. But then I, um, in my late 40s, I got really serious about rehabbing the knees and getting back into running. And then uh, it just took off uh, from there. I began 
really running. Uh, once the rehab was completed, they weren't even sure if I was going to be able to get my legs back uh, to running shape. But once that was completed, I, I really started taking off and uh, embarking on longer and longer distances. And then what had happened to me, Matt, is, is ostensibly I, I'm here in New York City and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the, the concrete jungle here, right, this urban environment. But I, I became very uh, caught up in the ultra running, really the culture around ultra running. And, um, you know, I was very influenced initially by Rich Roll's book, Finding Ultra. And then that kind of um, led me into the world of Tommy Rivers Pusey. And I became really obsessed, actually, with Tommy and the way he was approaching running. Um, I listened to, I think, every podcast he had been on and um, was just really caught up in this whole idea of like this free spirit that he is losing himself in these overnight runs in the canyons and and dropping into these uh, really sacred spaces. Um, and what really appealed to me most, really, as I listened to him and I listened to others like Timothy Olson and just, you know, ultra runners that to me manifested this kind of free and wild connection with the earth. And I became very caught up in that or at least wanting to do that. Um, and for a while, that was kind of my drive was to find a way to escape from New York and, you know, get out into wild places and do these things. And then I just really started to understand that that wasn't going to be possible for me or that it would really only be possible on a limited basis, that I'd maybe only get a dozen days of a year out on the trails and doing that sort of thing. Um, and so that, you know, kind of triggered this I, – I don't ever like to use the word depression, but a, a massive frustration that I wasn't going to be able to do what I wanted to do in ultra running. And then from there, it was really at that point is when I started just experimenting, frankly, and taking off – I'm a, a lifelong student of history, and in particular in New York history – but I just started taking off on these runs uh, to track historical destinations in the city. And, it, you know, and that became interesting is what I'll say. But that isn't historical to running. That isn't what it is. That's more sightseeing, if you will. Uh, historical to running is what came after that. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit on a few things that I find interesting. First, like this idea that ultra running like can't be done in like an urban setting right because you see i mean on like social media and the way the sport's covered it's always associated with you know these like vistas in nature and these huge mountain peaks but i think like your willingness to not like fight your urban environment but like lean into it is like really really interesting yeah it, it's you know so i started you know, what had happened is these, I started really just getting interested in, in the idea of combining running and history. And then um, really the genesis moment for me of, of where I became what I call a historical ultra runner is um, Edgar Allan Poe and, and a run I did there. So what had happened, what was different about Poe than all the other runs I'd done before that 
is that I'd spent um, about a month consuming almost everything I could read about Poe. And I studied Poe in college as well. I was an English major. So I, I had a good background. But really, reading biographies, truly understanding his life, reading as much of, of his poetry, his short stories, his literary criticism, you know, understanding his relationship with his wife, which was his cousin, uh, understanding his relationship with his father, John Allen, which was extremely complex and broken, and understanding his own alcoholism and all of that. So I, what had happened was I consumed all of this information for a long period of time, and I, I'm, I felt like I really got to know Poe. And then I, I strung together, and for me, not a terribly long run. It was like 21, 23 miles or something, but it was all the Poe sites – uh, from the southern Manhattan to northern uh, Manhattan. Um, and I just strung them together kind of from south to north. And I took off on this run this one day, and it was extremely uh, rainy and dark. It was, a po it, it was a po kind of day uh, to go on this run. Um, but I'd say as I was around uh, 15 miles into this run, um, you know, something started really opening in my mind. And that is, I started during the run having a, a moment of clarity, a eureka moment. And, and what I had realized while I was on that run was that I was on a Poe death run, that I was actually tracing Poe's attempt to outrun death as, as crazy as that sounds. But if you study Poe, you understand that he... Uh, keeps moving northward in the city. Each time he moves, he moves a little bit northward. Uh, he lived up on 84th Street uh, and Broadway for a while uh, with his wife and his wife's mother in the, what's known, what was known as the Brennan Farmhouse up there. And then they moved again up, uh, up into the Bronx. And what's really going on there is he's He's treating consumption. So a popular so his wife had consumption, tuberculosis. Uh, and his brother died of that and his parents died with that. So he he Poe had a big background uh, in this particular disease. And the common treatment in its day was to take clean air. So if you had the wealth, uh, many people didn't have the wealth, but uh, he was able to get enough money where they would keep moving north to keep finding cleaner air for her. Um, so I had this moment while I was running that I realized I was actually tracing this guy's attempt to outrun death. And of course, he's not successful at this. And this, um, this particular run finishes at Poe Cottage up on the Grand Concourse, which is the home where she died. They've preserved it. They moved it a couple blocks but it's the actual house she died in. It was Poe's house. They have the bed she died in. They have the chair that he sat in next to her as she died. And they had all these things. And so then I'm like standing over the bed that she died in. And, and you know, the, the well of sadness, the extraordinary sadness that was over me in this run, it was just really something. Um and then I went home, and then the run kind of offered up an extraordinary amount of blessings to me. It's just all night I was thinking about what had happened, what I'd figured out, what what I'd been able to participate in in like a 
a visitor in running shoes. And then, of course, um, it made me reflect on my own death. So the run became like this momentum more where I was starting to to really lock into the fact that I'm a temporary interloper as well, uh, visiting these sites and running shoes. And isn't that weird and odd? But, it, you know, it, it became a run that gave me extraordinary amounts of perspective on my own life. So from that moment, that's where I tell people I generally became what I call a historical ultra runner, where I was you know, more invested in the research, more invested in, in filling my mind as much as I could with the historical subject matter so that I could use it really as a foundation to run to. What do you think it is about running as a form of movement that makes those experiences kind of elevated? I'm going to share like uh, I'm going to share a thought that I borrowed from my many uh, listens of Tommy Rivers Pusey, and I I I, I don't want to. I reached out to him incidentally, and he was like so wonderful. I told him he was like the kind of godfather of this kind of running that I'm doing uh, in urban environments, and he was really kind and sweet and and engaged with me uh, through Instagram on this stuff. And this was before his illness. It's just a wonderful human. But I listened to him this one time. And he was, I'm kind of paraphrasing what he was saying, but he was talking about these long overnight, sometimes multi-day runs into the canyons that he was doing and how he would just lose himself into these places. And I, I, he was drawing some sort of analogy to holy, holy people, um, individuals who pray and or meditate for days and weeks and even months on end. And he was making the point that, you know, you can find your ways to those higher points of transcendence through extraordinary effort and meditation and prayer, right? Days, weeks, months of hard work, or you can take the shortcut, you know, and drop down into the canyon and waste your body over a night and, and, and your mind will crack open and you can enter that space. It's a shortcut, ironically. It's how I look at it. Um, so that space is what I'm interested in, right? How can I get there? And and then what kind of experiences can I fill it with? Um, and so I became really obsessed with like trying to, to put these historical experiences uh, that would be reflective on my own life as well into that pocket. How do you settle on a topic um, to kind of like plan your runs around? Yeah, that's a really uh, great question. It, it's kind of um, whatever grabs me at a particular time. I'll tell you, I'm extremely invested in Black history in New York City. Um, and it's mostly, and it's, every time I say this sentence, I catch myself like flinching because it sounds so superficial on some level. But I, I, it is, in fact, one of the fascinations about Black history for me. One of the fascinations of Black history for me is, is for me, it's, it's all new. Okay, so that this history has been largely covered up in the United States. Certainly the Black history in New York City has been completely covered up. I mean, you know, you can line up 100 lifelong New Yorkers born and raised in New York City, highly educated people, and ask them if they know about, you know, the several times in the city's history where we um, 
even just saying these words is, is hard. But there were several occasions in 1741 and previously in 1712 where enslaved Africans were uh, tied to the stake in Lower New York and burned alive. So in, that was in 1712 was, I believe, the first time that had happened. There was a slave rebellion in the city uh, when the enslaved Africans fought back. Um, so right there, first of all, most New Yorkers don't know that the enslaved Africans who actually built our city, that there was this rebellion against, you know, where they, where they fought back. That's an important story to tell. It's not known. I believe um, four enslaved Africans were um, burned at the stake at that time. One was broken on the wheel and one was starved, if I'm not uh, mistaken. And then in 1741, there were fears of a second um, uprising from enslaved Africans. And this time, um, the crackdown was much more significant. And I believe somewhere between 20 to 30 enslaved Africans were burned at the stake. Hundreds were shipped away on boats, away from what family and friends they had here in the city. Um, it was one of the worst incidents ever to take place in New York City. Yet your average New Yorker has no knowledge of this, this kind of information. Jill Lepore wrote an amazing book on this called New York Burning. But if you don't go and find this information, you won't know about it. It's not taught in the schools, right? It's As far as I know, it's not taught in college. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So compare that to the Salem witch trials, which any 12-year-old in America can tell you about. You know, so so... That interests me. I, I'm, I want to run to that because those sorts of experiences change my understanding of my city, myself, our, our position here, everything. What, what form did that run take for you? So that was um, – so in 2019 is actually when I learned about um, what had happened in, in, in lower New York. And so for Black History Month in 2019 – I strung together, I think it was a 45-mile route, but it was a, I ran uh, in a single day through all five boroughs, visiting key spots of American history, of Black American history that I didn't understand and hadn't known about. And uh, that particular run, um, I got very, you know, I got partners involved, I, uh, the African Burial Ground and the Weeksville Heritage Center in New York and other destinations for Black history got really interested in, in this guy who was running all these miles to visit these spots. So they blew it into the media and a lot of media ended up covering what I was doing there. And then um, that particular run, you know, catalyzed a lot of inbounds from other runners saying, Oh man, that was really awesome. If you do that next year uh, for Black History Month, you know, can I go with you? Kind of thing. So I ended up found, founding a race there, and um, you know, I'm the race director for an event here in the city called the NYC Black History 50. Uh, that's kind of came out of that 2019 event. How do you turn that into a race? Like, is it competitive or is it kind of more of like a experiential run? Yeah, so that's a so that's a purely experiential run, right? And I think we did it um, for the first year last year. 
uh, we're going to do it again this year. We just announced it the other day. It's going to happen the day before the Super Bowl. Tickets will go on sale in a couple months. Um, and Allison Mariella Desir, um, one of the most important figures now in diversity, equity, and inclusion in the running community. Um, she has a new book coming out by Random House, I think, in, in October, right around the corner, called Running While Black. And um, so she was a partner on this event, and we've made her the chairman, the chairwoman of the event going forward. And she's just amazing. She's going to be extremely involved in picking out all the spots because I'm not going to be involved in the picking out of the spots. Um, I want that all to be curate, curated independent from me. Uh, I don't want to contribute to the prior paradigm, which is basically black history being handed down uh, typically by white educated males. Right. Uh, so I, I, I don't, you know, I'm aware of the problems of that. So um, I've kind of stepped away from choosing which sites we're going to visit. And Allison and her team are going to be like uh, choosing and helping to design the routes while I serve as race director, uh, working with all our partners. So I'm really excited about that. Did you have any kind of reservations about like opening up these um, like historical runs to other people? Like, because yeah. I know you were doing them for a while, just like by yourself. Totally right? solo. Yeah, thanks. And that's such a good question, Matt. So here's, you know, it's going to sound. Sometimes I look at running and 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 I look at the the extraordinary gifts, like your show here, right? So all these wonderful folks who come on, um, you know, off the couch, their stories of transcendence, their ability to break through barriers, the, their ability to, to find a, a higher spot in themselves, right? It's amazing. But at at a, on one level, I I worry sometimes when it's just me, 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 that it's all about me, you know, that I'm going on these long historical ultra runs and I get this incredible blessing and it's just incredible, but it's just for me, right? Um, so part of the motivation is externally driven, you know, what is your calling? You know, what can I do for others? Um, you know, and I say this about the Black History 52, you know, if Someone can run five miles. I, they can come and run 50. Easy. So you can run 50 miles so easily on the Black History 50 run. If you compare the Black History 50 run with the JFK 50, I'm going to say that my run is probably, I don't know how many times, like an infinite percentage uh, easier. And, and here's why. Okay, let's say you run five miles and then you find yourself in the basement of Plymouth Church with the lights out in the same room where enslaved Africans were hidden on their journey north to freedom. And you're in that room and that room is, it's just incredibly powerful. People, the amount of fear that was in those rooms, the amount of hope, right? I mean, all the things that were happening in that room. If you are in that room after mile five, okay, then you leave the church and you've got five more miles to run to the Weeksville Heritage Center, your next stop. You're not thinking about your body. You're not thinking about your legs. You're thinking about the, the souls that you, that you just encountered in that room. And then you're going to go to another spot 
and you're going to have another deeply, you're going to be likely at, at an enslaved African burial ground. And you're going to discover that it's paved over and gone. You're going to discover that nearly every, every cemetery in this city and across all five boroughs for enslaved Africans was paved up and covered over. They're all gone. Their parking lots, their buildings, they're just gone. And um, you run to those spots and you're in a completely different headspace. And that's, this is part of what I want to tell people about historical ultra running. You know, you can run. It's going to be really hard for someone to run 50 miles, get out on a road, run 50 miles. Even if you have aid stations, even if you're crewed and supported, you don't need any of that stuff to run 50 miles at the NYC Black History 50. You'll get through it. Easy run for you. You just don't know that you're tricking your body. You're tricking your mind, basically, away from the pain of the body. So that's my ad for the NYC Black History 50. Yeah, I know. It's like, it's literally like an out of body experience. I think I heard somewhere that like Dean Carnassus thinks about like every single step he takes during like, uh, you know, a hundred mile race. And I can never do that. I can never be <laughs> like that present, you know, nor would I want to be. I so agree. I always look at myself and I worry that I, I sometimes suffer from imposter syndrome. I, you know, I sometimes look at these guys who get into that pain cave and thrive in that pain cave, and I worry I'm not that guy, and I worry uh, I worry that uh, I've created all of this uh, because I'm not that guy. But I, I'm interested in running in a different way, for sure. Right. It's definitely more like philosophical. Yeah, totally. Yeah. How big was the turnout for the first uh, race you put on? So the first one I ever put on, um, which is really an amazing race. So there's just two of them. The first one is the Warriors Ultra Run. All right, I want to talk about that. Okay, because <laughs> I've, I've I've heard you talk about it on on other shows, and I'm like just blown away by the concept and like the commitment to it. Yeah, it's really wild. So um, here's what happened there. Kind of same setup for how it started. So that one was in 2018. So in 2018, by myself, and I'm a total fanatic of that movie, right? So this is Walter Hill, released in 1979, the ultimate NYC cult movie. It's about, uh, for those who haven't seen it, it's about a gang uh, called the Warriors that is wrongfully framed for a murder they did not commit. And then they're pursued on foot by over 100 rival gangs through the city of New York. It is absolutely one of the greatest running movies of all time. Uh, it's running, there's running the whole way front to back through the movie. And um, it's it's just an unbelievable concept. So I grew up kind of obsessed with this film because it was my window into what I thought was New York City. Because it's like, it wasn't truly like that. It was a comic book view of the gangs of New York in the 70s. But um, so one night I, I went up into the Bronx and I decided I was going to recreate the run. So I went by myself and I went uh, into the middle of Van Cortlandt Park at like one in the morning. And uh, that's the fictional site of the Conclave, Van Cortlandt Park. And I left from there. 
And then I, you know, did my best to string together all the sites that appeared in the movie in a 28-mile run for Coney Island so that I could be there at dawn in the morning, just as the warriors had as the sun came up. So I did that, and I, I threw it up on social, and that was crazy because really? I didn't, I yeah, I didn't expect what happened next. I put it up on social, and I started hearing from. All these ultra runners, I mean, so many ultra runners reached out to me and said that the, the movie was so important to them, you know, because of the running and everything else. And probably the most interesting person that I heard from was Ian Corliss, who runs the Talk, Talk, Talk Ultra podcast. And Ian's a total super fan. And so he heard about what I was doing with the Warriors, and he called me. He had me on Talk Ultra to talk about this underground thing I'd done, and that put it out there everywhere. And yeah. so then I started hearing from constant people, phone calls, emails, uh, inbounds, uh, saying, you've got to do this again. And so the next year I did. Um we had about 30 people the first time, and now you know, we had 130 registered last uh, this year, but we had 40 cancellations from COVID. It was so brutal. Uh, so we had 90 again. Last two years, we've had a field of 90. And what the concept is there is uh, it replicates what happens in the movie. So what we do is we have a Warriors Elite team. It's a special gang that we create just for this race each year. It largely consists of the last year's winners of the event who then create a nine-person team that's called the Warriors Elite Team. Uh, this year, that team was led by Karen Elaine from Black Men Run. He's an amazing human being, a community activist in East New York, and just a terrific guy, uh, just heart and like a lion, this guy is just just amazing, and um, so Karen led this particular team. This team is given a ten minute head start. Uh, it, we start up in the South Bronx at one in the morning, and the Warriors Elite team is given a ten minute head start, and then the full field chases them all the way through New York City via GPS all night. The team, this is what's cool about it. Karen is the war chief. That's a term from uh, the movie. He's in charge of the gang. Um, but the gang has to run at one pace. They can't break up. He's got to keep his gang together. He's got to keep his gang running at one pace as these gangs close in behind him. And And what's really hard is that if anyone wants to drop off the elite team, they can. You know, we all have bad days running, right? So what do you do if you're really hot, if you're overheated, if you're just not in good shape and you're on that elite team and you you got to get off, whatever, you're having a bad night? Well, you can. Karen will let you off his team. But first, the whole team gets penalized for two minutes and has to stop. And so the, the gangs catch up even more if you drop. So it, it turns the war chief into a coach as well as, you know, a disciplinarian. It's wild. And, these, and, and this year they were caught at seven miles and passed by uh, Ahmed Musa, who, who won first place this year. And this is like an unsanctioned event, right? Yeah, there's um, there's uh, no aid stations, no bathrooms, no security, nothing. Uh, you're totally on your own. And so we, 
you know, everyone has to get to Coney Island on their own. So, and it's hilarious how, because, you know, people always ask, can I set up an aid station? And we're going, no, no, we don't want the aid stations. We want everyone, just like the movie, you have to find your way home. But it's wild. People stash drop bags in the middle of New York City, which is like ridiculous. Uh, they'll still, they'll, they'll stash their car along the route we are so flexible like i don't want to use the word cheating but we we allow all sorts of like stuff that no other race would allow so yeah some interesting tactics um totally what are some of like the obstacles of like running in new york city in the middle of the night and like early hours of the morning so that's great yeah it's you you know i i um I, I am very good at this. So I, I consider myself in a small group of runners uh, who are experts at running this city safely at all hours in the night. So um, I'll talk about that first in terms of how I address safety, and then I can come back to what do we do with the Warriors. So what I do when I do historical ultra running, and I'm training now, I can't announce it, unfortunately, but I'm going to be doing about a 90 mile historical ultra run in three to four weeks. So what I'll do generally on these runs is, you know, I'll do a, I'll use a crime heat map to kind of get a sense of the neighborhoods I'm running through and whether, you know, they're really dangerous or not, et cetera. So I very rarely, I almost have never gone away, (laughs) avoided a neighborhood due to crime. But um, what I will do, what I will say is that uh, Google Maps will kill you as an ultra runner or as a historical ultra runner in New York. Because Google Maps is really powerful at finding the shortest route between any two points. But it, you know, it doesn't factor in things like, is is the neighborhood safe? Is there a sidewalk? Is it well lit? All those sorts of things. So what you need to do is you need to find major roads. And that's that's really how I try and run most of it. I also, you know, in the late night hours, I don't go near parks. I've had some really bad uh, situations, dangerous situations in parks in New York City late at night. The water's edge almost Throughout the city, the water's edge is very dangerous at night. It's, it's you know, where a lot of folks who are, you know, either uh, participating in crime or could participate in crime are uh, aggregate late at night. So I, I try and stay away from the water's edge as well. Uh, but with the Warriors, what I'll say is um, we take that security issue really seriously. And we stay on major roads the whole time. And everyone is paired up in that run in groups uh, before we leave. So no one runs alone. What are some of like the craziest things you've seen in the middle of the night in New York City? Craziest things I've seen in New York City? Well, there was... Um, so I'll tell you two stories. I'll t- oh, actually, I'll, I'll tell you one story. I was um, on a Teddy Roosevelt run. And I think it was like a 70-miler some years ago and i and this is when i was learning uh to i hadn't learned the mess the lessons that i now know i was in the process of learning these lessons uh one of those lessons is to stay away from parks at night so on the teddy roosevelt i was coming from a home he had uh, somewhere in northern manhattan a summer home and i was dropping down um you know, into Manhattan to, to visit some of the other sites that are important in his life. And, 
I was coming down uh, Harlem River Drive, and you can enter um, the High Bridge Park at, at, in that area. And it's so gorgeous. High Bridge Park is one of my favorite places to run in the daytime in New York. It's just gorgeous. Um, but underneath the High Bridge at night in New York, especially a hot summer night, I mean, the gangs come out. It, it is a different park late at night. And most, many of the parks in New York become different parks late at night. So I didn't know all of this yet. I was learning all of these things. And so I got, I want to say like halfway through that park and it started getting really dangerous. And I had my lights on and it was just a lot of uh, gang elements out and gathering everywhere but i was at the point where if i turned around and ran back it was going to attract more attention um so i just plowed on forward and then i did one of the uh probably the stupidest thing i've ever done in this whole journey and that is when i got further into the park there uh there was kind of this huge gathering hundreds of people kind of like uh, gathered in a group and dancing and super loud music jamming. And it was just on and it was cool. It was New York City in the middle of the night, some unsanctioned party under the high bridge. Everyone's tearing it up. And me pulls out my camera to take a picture. I wanted to capture this. And I just didn't, I, you know, I just wasn't thinking. I wasn't thinking at all. And so the moment I took out my iPhone, I, I don't even, you know, the moment I took it to shoot, the problems began. And I realized, oh, my God, what have I done? And this, um, I heard this woman scream at me to turn around. And I turned around and there was a, a, young, a young woman saying, screaming, are you a cop? And I was just like, no, no, I'm just running, you know, I'm like pointing at my lights. And and then she had like two or three other girls who were like running up behind her. And I just realized that I was in a lot of trouble. And uh, so I took off. I mean, I really did. I was terrified. I took off in a sprint and they were behind me. And I mean, I, I literally sprinted through the remainder of this park and then uh, like 20 blocks uh, until I felt that I was safe. But I was like hiding between buildings because I wasn't sure if they'd gone back for cars and there were now people looking on the streets for me. It was like a really scary moment. But I learned a lot, you know, in that night, which was never, you know, what, where you run in the day, Todd, is not where you run at night. So, um, that was a pretty wild thing I picked up in the nights. Yeah, I think your approach to running reminds me, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with like Ricky Gates and his like every single street project. Yes, I, I am actually. Yeah. Yep. Have you have you thought about like doing that in, around New York at all? Um, yeah, and there's a there's a few there's a few individuals who do similar things here in the city that have run every single street in, in New York, which I think is really cool and really important too. Yeah. Have, what have you learned about New York uh, since your time like running around it um, that like may not that like most people may not know? Yeah. So um, so what I'll say is the Warriors Ultra is probably a great window into my favorite 
parts of New York City. So if you run the Warriors Ultra, you run from the South Bronx to Coney Island. It's 28 miles, really short. It's the shortest ultra anywhere. So if you're looking for a first ultra to officially call an ultra, think about uh, – the Warriors Ultra Run. It's it's a great first ultra, but why uh, that run is truly so amazing outside of the concept of chasing this elite team. What what really makes it um, amazing is what you run through. So at one in the morning, um, there is a part of New York City, in particular in the summer, that if you see is so magical and so beautiful and so absolutely. Um, just it really is inspirational so when you run at one in the morning from the south bronx you come through washington heights and harlem and at one in the morning on a summer night the latin music is pumping the men and women are out playing backgammon and street games uh there's kids out there's dancing i mean i can't tell you how many times in the middle of the night i've come through uh one of those areas and like People are partying and having so much fun that they'll actually stop me, and I'll actually have to. I, one day I had to. One night I had to dance with this woman. They wouldn't let me pass. It was really wild. But like that's, you know, people who live in New York their whole life don't see that. That's that's New York after dark, and that's not New York after dark on the Upper East Side. This is the Bronx, right? So so these are. This is where. I feel the heart of New York beats, right? It is in those places, very often in the outer boroughs. Yeah, do people stop you and like ask you what you're doing? All the time, yeah. What totally. do you say? I, you know, it's funny. I mean, because you get all sorts of different <laughs> characters. You know, like, it's funny. There was this one time, I think it was on the French Connection run. So I did this run. It was like a 40-miler tracing the French Connection. Um, and the movie reflects the book. It's just an incredible story. So I was doing that run, and there was a guy uh, up in – I want to say it was up somewhere in Harlem. But he was tweaking. He was on something. And, and he came running up to me, and he <laughs> – he was just a wreck and I could smell the alcohol in him, but I could also tell he was like on something else. And he asked if he could run with me and you can't really say, no, you can't. And so this, I said, yes. And so this guy like ran with me next to me and he was like babbling and everything, but he like, as I suspected, after like two blocks, he started falling apart and he eventually just stopped. Uh, but those people will come up to you and approach you all the time like that. Yeah. But you so, generally are not a target for crime so much. Right. Because you have nothing on you. You have nothing on you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. People don't know what to do with like a GPS watch. Exactly. Take it. So tell me about like the fallout from uh, the New York Times article. Um, how did that kind of change things? Because like I'm sure, you know, thousands and thousands of people uh, read that article. Yeah, it was, you know, it was just really wild. And also, you know, it was really important, you know, it was really an important story in that, um, you know, for a while, I'd been doing these crazy runs, and, and they'd 
were starting to become more public and no one had really kind of understood what it was I was trying to do. So the story was was really important in kind of connecting the dots between where I'd been. It mentioned my past. It mentioned the drinking and that kind of stuff. So it kind of like set the table. And it also like clarified to everyone in my company, like what I do in my off hours, because they didn't really understand it. That's another question I was going to ask, like how much of this, well, I guess at this point, like you're, you're a pretty public facing figure, but was there any kind of like desire to keep this kind of, you know, under wraps? No, I don't think there was ever a desire to keep it under wraps. Um, I think there was more of a desire to to evolve it into more of this public expression because again i was like suffering from this um, kind of this internal thing where i was saying this is really selfish you know like right people you know this is all for me you know and and other people can participate in this and other people can have these experiences and i think i can share how do you think folks that maybe like don't live in a, a major like urban area um or somewhere that like doesn't have Edgar Allan Poe's yeah. and major historical figures, um, how can they kind of replicate your approach to running? Yeah, I had um, there was this um, this guy who came up to me once and actually asked that question, and he, you know, he said, "I'm from I forget the name of the town, but it was like some small town in Wisconsin, and there was." like less than 500 people in the town. And he was saying like, yes, we have history, but it's like not that much. There was one battle near here and right. we really don't have much. There was a mayor, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but what I said to that person is really true, which is you can apply the same thing in myriad ways, right? So you can run to geologic formations. You can run to flora and fauna, right? You can string these things together. Now, can you fall in, can you really collapse and fall into a glacier, uh, a uh, peninsula, a mountain uh, structure? I don't know. But, um, you know, that's one way I would answer that. I haven't tried that. But these sorts of things that you can latch on to and, and try and participate in, I'm going to bet that you can cross running with viewing wildlife, for example, or engaging in, in tracking trees and butterflies and such. I think all those things are interesting. How has running kind of like informed your view of history now? That's a really good question. Yeah, I, I mean... I'm, a, I'm uniquely engaged in history, and I really care about it. It's changed it um, in the sense that, you know, I, I've, I've come to see understand, uh, history as something that we have a responsibility on a personal level to engage with. So this, these are just me and my somewhat extreme positions, uh, but I am a man of extremes. But, but I, I believe, uh, for example, New Yorkers have an obligation Okay, which nearly all of us fail at in learning the true history of this city. And then I think um, we have an obligation to unearth the history of this city, in particular for those who are lost, those who were lost, and, and to share that 
that history. So history isn't something that's done. History is something that is alive and is constantly reinterpreted. And Black history is probably the best example of that because Black history, the Black history that we know is small, limited, and uh, is it's just you know, a shape of what can come. There's so much more there that we don't know about. I've got a question about memory because I have this opinion that, well, I guess I've experienced it myself that like, for whatever reason, I, you know, I forget phone numbers and names all the time, but I remember stretches of trail I run on like to the minutest detail. And I'm wondering if there's any connection between like running and memory. And if you've kind of used that to like, better integrate the history uh, that you've learned about? It's a really interesting question. I mean, I could, so, I mean, I have similar, similar uh, feelings uh, about that. So when I'm, um, when I'm running, when I'm, you know, laying down myself on a long historical distance, I, um, I have this sense that I'm actually participating in in the history itself as strange as it sounds so i i when you say that i you can remember stretches of trail i can absolutely remember specific streets and and passages on runs that are extremely meaning to me meaningful to me and that hold these historical memories crossed with my own uh, reaction uh, to, to the history itself, because that's really what it's about. You know, the reactions, um, some of the things that happen in my mind on these runs, the run of Sam, you know, is an example of a run that, you know, generated uh, a huge internal response on me. What is the run of Sam? Um, so that's, it's a run I'm probably going to uh take a uh, next year I'm, I'm thinking at some point in 2023 in the summer i will probably put out a notice and take a small group of um, really dedicated uh, wannabe historical ultra runners on on what i consider uh, to be so far to date the most transcendent route i've ever run and i'll tell you about it so um the run of sam is a run uh, I conceived of also in 2019. It's about a 60 miler and it visits um, all of the David uh, Berkowitz shooting sites in a, in a single night, right? So there were, you know, I think a, a total all in, I think uh, six, six people died and seven were wounded. I mean, it was late seventies. It, it's, it was a really an incredible thing, but here's what's uh, going on there. So, if you are familiar with the Son of Sam crimes, uh, they're fully demonic. I mean, they are fully demonic crimes. Berkowitz, the letters he left behind. I mean, he's referencing the demons in the letters. Any subsequent interviews with him, you'll see. These are fully demonic crimes, some of the most demonic crimes ever committed in New York. Um, so what that run is not is a celebration of David Berkowitz. I turned it upside down and I spent a long time studying the victims 
And I even met with the victims. So I met with Carl DeNaro. I had dinner with Carl and I just heard all of his story and everything I could. And, and so what that run was, is I refused to glorify Berkowitz and I instead uh, set out to remember and pray for each one of these victims at each of the spots over, over, uh, over 60 miles of running. Um, and I prepare for that run uh, by being in mass. I was in mass. I'm Catholic. Uh, in the months up to that, I was in mass almost every day, seriously, getting my uh, spiritual house in order, right? It, and I take these things really seriously. It, it, a run like that is, uh, in my mind, no different than messing with a, a Ouija board, right? Care, careful what you might bring home, right? So I go into that run absolutely absolutely spiritually centered, extremely reverent. And I go to these places and I drop down on my knees and I pray over 60 miles. And um, during that run, I, I had unquestionably the most intense experience I've had in all of ultra running to date. And it's uh, and it was so wild that that happened on a, on this demonic run. Uh, but that, so what had happened was uh, there was a stretch. Um, I think I was at around mile 40 or so. And, th- and that that's like a, a lot of good things start happening at that distance where your mind really cracks open. So what had happened was um, I'd been through a whole range of murder sites and, and that run, I mean, If you do that over a course of a night, if you drop down to your knees and pray for people who've been murdered and you're praying in the spots where they were murdered after running, okay, that's intense. It's a really intense thing. I can imagine, yeah. And and you have to do that really reverently, and I do it reverently, and and I take great care in these runs. So um, I had – I had entered this moment in the run at around mile 40 where I, I kind of did this mental exercise in my head where I was reciting all the names of the victims in a, like a repeating carousel, like Carl DeNaro, Rosemary Keenan, Donna DeMassey, Joanne Lamino, just all of their names in this cascade over and over again. And then every time I, I said a name of one of the victims, you know, I would see their face. And, and re- recall all the stories I'd read about them, because I really did. I mean, I approached this run not as a tourist visiting crime scenes, but as someone who was uniquely trying to understand what was lost and who died and what these people were and the pain that was left behind. And, um, you know, it's all out there in the media. Every year, the anniversary comes of these shootings, and the families are dragged through it again. But I, I was... Having this carousel in my mind, and I was chanting the names of each victim in my in my mind over and over again to kind of lock my brain. And then this thing happened uh, where I was fully connected uh, to God, fully connected, fully connected, like in in dialogue, and then simultaneously uh, felt fully connected to the individuals I was praying to, and I held that. I held that that thing for about 10 miles. Now, if you've ever had a dream 
where you're actually conscious in the dream and you're saying to yourself, my goodness, Matt, this is a really crazy dream I'm having. Look what's happening, right? You, you kind of narrate over your dream and you have this second layer of consciousness that watches the dream. That was the wildest thing about the memory is as it was happening, as my heart and my soul were fully connected to God, as my heart and soul was fully connected to the victims and understanding that they were in peace because they let me know that. As that was going on, I was talking to myself saying, this is so intense. I can't believe it's still going on. I can't believe I'm another mile's gone by and I'm still feeling like this. So the deepest experience I ever had on a historical altar run was that on this demon run. So I'm going to take some folks on this next time. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think that like encapsulates like your approach, you know, and I think that's like why you do it. And it makes running so much more sustainable and enjoyable than like going after fast times and, and being competitive. It's like a way to interact with the world. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. I think it's a, a great spot to to end it for today. Um, Todd, thanks so much for, for coming on and telling me all these cool stories, man. I, I think I, I definitely want to incorporate some of your approach into my own running. Cool. Well, listen, Matt, thank you so much for having me on the show. Thanks for your great conversation and all the good questions too. All right. See ya. Thanks. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Todd for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week.